We're beginning a sermon series this morning, a stewardship series called Living with Margin. So we're going to take a break from 1 Samuel for a little bit and uh, do a more topical study. And today's discussion, as you've heard already from our liturgist, comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 10. And I want to begin by reflecting on margins in general. And I'm going to share a quotation from Frank Borum, who was an English Baptist preacher who served from the end of the 19th century into the middle of the 20th century. Several different countries, actually, he served in, but he was born and raised in England. And he's written a number of different books, and there are a number of compilations of essays that he wrote. The one that the following quotation comes from is a book called Mushrooms on the Moor. And he's reflecting on margin, and he's thinking particularly about margins uh, at first in books. Have you ever noticed how wide your margins in your books are? Uh, Borum really likes a wide margin. This is what he wrote. I love a margin. There's something delicious, luxurious, glorious in the spacious field of creamy paper bounded by the black letterpress on the one side and the gilt edges on the other. Could anything be more abominable than a book that is printed to the uttermost extremities of every page? It's an outrage, I aver, on human nature. Indeed, it's an outrage upon nature herself, for nature loves her margins even more than I do. She goes in for margins on a truly stupendous scale. She wants a bird, so a dozen are hatched. She knows perfectly well that 11 out of the 12 are merely margin. She wants a tree, so she plants 100. She knows that 90 and 9 are margin, to be browsed down by cattle, but she means to make sure of her one. I fancy there's a good deal in it. It is the margin that makes all the difference. If the work that absolutely must be done occupies every waking moment of my time, I am a slave. But if it leaves a margin of a single hour, I am in clover. If my receipts will only just balance my expenditure, I'm living a mere hand-to-mouth existence. But if they leave me a margin, I jingle the odd coins in my pocket with the pride of a prince. I believe that one of the supreme aims of a man's life should be to secure a margin. Nature does it, and we must copy her. A good life, like a good book, should have a good margin. Now, when I first read Borum's essay some years ago, I found myself struck by just the simple wisdom of that observation. And I started to ask myself, do I have a margin? Now, in some areas of my life, I found that very easy to ask. I had asked it a lot. Today, we're going to talk about financial margins And I had certainly asked about those margins many times in my life. A lack of financial margin is really hard to ignore. However, I rarely asked if I had a margin of time or a margin of strength. And we're going to discuss those facets of living with margin in the upcoming weeks. My hope is that through this series, we might learn in which areas of our lives God has asked us to reserve a margin and even more why God has asked us to reserve margins in those areas. Today we'll discuss God's requirements of leaving a margin of material resources, whether that is food or money or possessions. The preliminary question is this, and we just read it together. Did you realize, I didn't realize till much more recently in my life than I'd like to admit, did you realize that God wishes his people not to live to the limits of our resources? In other words, God has asked his children not to live to the limit of what we can afford. 
Let's return briefly to the passage that our liturgist shared with us earlier. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through the beginning of verse 10 reads as follows. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. So maybe some of that language seems archaic. So just to clarify it, when God gave Israel the terms of the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai, God required the Israelites not to reap to the edges of their fields, not to glean their fields, and not to gather the fallen grapes of their vineyards. So to use Frank Borum's analogy, God told Israel to leave a margin. First, they had to leave a margin of unharvested crops at the edge of their fields. Does anybody do that? Second, they could not glean the fields. Now, what gleaning was, was going over your harvest a second time. So let's say the first time you went through, you missed some things, or maybe some things weren't ready to be harvested. They weren't using big combines in those days. They were going through people harvesting. And if you had stuff that wasn't quite ripe yet or ready, you would leave it. Well, Israel was prohibited of going through their fields a second time. They were only allowed one harvest. That's what gleaning was. Anything left after the first harvesting had to be left behind. Third, in the case that they were growing fruit trees or vines, they could not pick up any fallen fruit off the ground for themselves. So in these ways, God put in the law of Moses the requirement of leaving a margin. Why? Well, see, that's the important question, right? I mean, there are many reasons to leave a margin. When Jennifer and I first got married, we were counseled to preserve a margin as quickly as possible. Our premarital counselor told us to try to save at least three months of living expenses absolutely as quickly as we could. He wanted us to reserve a margin. Why? Well, in the case that one or both of us lost our job or couldn't work, we would need a margin to feed us during lean times. And the rule of thumb in those days was three months of living expenses. That's the essence of retirement savings, right? Reserve a margin now so that you don't struggle later. We were also counseled to agree upon a budget which included a margin for unregulated spending. Jen remembers this. In other words, our counselor told us that many couples, and I know you'll find this very hard to believe, that many couples find it difficult to have to negotiate with each other for every expense after marriage. So he counseled us to budget for each of us to have an equal allotment of spending money that we could spend any way we wished without need for approval from our spouse. Again, he was encouraging us to reserve a margin. Why? Well, this was a margin to allow some financial autonomy in order to avoid the inevitable chaos that ensues when one person feels so restrained by the financial control of the other that they just explode at some point in a spending, a spending frenzy. Or they get divorced, one way or the other. He told us that uh, financial reasons for divorce were of, among the most common. Jesus, too, told a parable about a man whose fields produced far more crops in one season than he had expected. So he built bigger barns, to store up his greater yields. Jesus then said that the man felt at peace because his larger margin now meant that his future was more secure. Are those the kinds of things for which God was preparing Israel when he told them to reserve a margin? 
Was their margin intended to be a type of savings account in the case of unexpected events or to ward off future family conflict? Is that his logic? Well, no. In the parable I just mentioned, some of you knew how the rest of the story went, right? Jesus went on to condemn the man who had built the bigger barns and, had sent, and then sentenced him to death. And given that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, that's not surprising. Because the teachings of Leviticus should have prepared Israel for that teaching of Jesus. So if we return to Leviticus chapter 19, now the second part of verse 10, we hear why God wanted them to reserve a margin. The text continues this way, You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. Now that word stranger doesn't mean someone simply who's strange to you. It's a very common Hebrew word that refers to immigrants. People who came from other countries who were not native Israelites. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. So why did God prohibit Israel from harvesting all of their crops? From going over their fields more than once? And from picking up any fruit that had fallen to the ground? Well, the leavings were for the needy and for the stranger. The margin was for the poor and for the immigrant. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, the prophets of the First Testament criticized Israel for largely neglecting this kind of margin, as we saw in our series through Amos, for instance. However, there are positive examples in the Bible of folks who did live this way and blessed others by their obedience. For instance, in the book of Genesis, chapter 41, we're told that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had two dreams in which seven skinny, scraggly-looking things ate up seven healthy, fat things. The text tells us that none of Pharaoh's soothsayer priests could interpret his dreams. But word came to Pharaoh about a man who was serving in one of Egypt's prisons who had rightly interpreted dreams before. His name was Joseph. The Lord allowed Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and Joseph revealed that seven years of superabundant harvests were about to come upon Egypt, but they were going to be followed by seven years of devastating famine. So Joseph suggested to Pharaoh that they reserve a margin during the good years to see Egypt through the bad years, and Pharaoh agreed. Now that might sound a lot like the parable of the bigger barns that Jesus told, but there's a significant difference, isn't there? The man in Jesus' parable built the bigger barns for himself. Whereas the margin stored in Egypt was not simply for Pharaoh, but for the feeding of his nation. In fact, they stored up so much margin that the poor and strangers of many nations came to Egypt to be fed during those seven years of famine. Joseph's family, too, came to Egypt as immigrants to purchase food, and they were fed by Egypt's margin. Now, if you read the story, you know quickly that Pharaoh profited from the storing up of that margin in ways that were not honoring to God. But the reason God sent forewarning to them was not to make Pharaoh rich, but to feed the people during the years of famine. The First Testament book of Ruth also tells us of a man who reserved a margin for the poor and the immigrant on his land. And he, I think, we know him as Boaz, but we might as well have called him Frank Borum, because boy, did he left a wide margin. He didn't live a little skimpy little margin around the edges. Boaz left a wide margin on the edge. And when a widow named Naomi and her immigrant daughter-in-law, Ruth, arrived destitute in Israel, they were blessed 
to wander into the fields of Boaz where there was a wide margin left for the poor and the immigrant. In fact, when Boaz saw Ruth and Naomi's need, he widened the margin even further and gave them more than they were even going to get given the way he normally operated, more than even the covenant of Sinai would have required him to give. What we learn from the covenant of Sinai, we learn from the examples of Joseph and of Boaz, is partly this, and this is a a statement that we'll return to throughout this series. A person's capacity to be generous depends fundamentally on the amount of margin in his or her life. A person who lives to the edges of their field will have nothing with which to help anybody. Now, a question that might arise out of this observation is, well, what about tithing? Isn't reserving 10% of our increase the margin that God required of Israel? And the answer to that is sadly no. The tithe for Israel was taken out of the harvest, not out of the margin that was left behind. The margin was entirely for the poor and the immigrant. The tithe was different. Now, there are a number of different interpretive options for how to understand tithing in Israel. And believe me, no financial committee wants me to preach on tithing in the church. You won't like what you hear. So I'm not going to teach on tithing. The pertinent texts, though, and you can read them yourself, are to be found in Leviticus 27, verses 30 to 33, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 to 29. So you can read those. To my reading of the text... The tithe was devoted, it was devoted to the poor and to immigrants, but only every third year. The other two years it was used for other things. So you can read those texts and explore those details yourself. The point, however, is that the margin about what we're discussing is quite apart from the tithe. The tithe is not the margin. To return to our main point again, a person's capacity to be generous depends fundamentally on the amount of margin in his or her life. Now, is that just a First Testament law from an archaic book that no longer applies to Christians? That's what I always hear about the First Testament. It's amazing to me Christians say that, but I hear it a lot. Or does that teaching of God carry through the teachings of Jesus and of the apostles in the New Testament? Well, thankfully, it does carry through. Hospitality, generosity, and compassionate care are of high ethical value in the New Testament, all of which are severely limited if we've not left a margin. When Jesus taught the following in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, full obedience to what he said would require a margin. This is what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now we're going to return to that passage several times during the series. But for today's purposes, verse 42 seems most applicable. Jesus has explained that citizens of the kingdom are always ready to share, always ready to give, always living with open hands. It's out of our margin that we could obey that most easily. The more margin, the more natural generosity and hospitality will be. The less margin, the more of an imposition a person's request becomes on us. 
Okay, that's all fine and good. You must be talking to rich people. What if I don't have margin? Because I simply don't make enough money for ends to meet. Now that's where the real teeth of this teaching come in, isn't it? It's where the real cost of hospitality and compassion are to be found. And Jesus was getting at that just a little bit when he said, if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The cloak is the outer garment, and that was more essential than the tunic or the inner garment. The inner garment in Jesus' day was margin. The outer garment was flesh. It was harvest. Jesus was suggesting that citizens of the kingdom can afford to be more generous than even their margin might allow. Well, how can that be? Well, it takes a transformation of thinking in order to imagine what Jesus is suggesting there. You and I have been raised in what Walter Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity. The myth of scarcity tells us that there's only so much to go around, and for every bit one person has, there's less for others to have. It's a closed system. And in many ways, that's true when humans are involved. So there's only so much money, right? Because humans made money. God didn't make money. Human, we print that. We print that somewhere, right? There's no miracle about it. We, we make it. And so anything human makes, there's only so much of. So material goods like pews are made by people. There's only so many of them. Money is made by people and controlled by governments. There's only so much of it. Anything humans control has limited resources. There are only so many TVs. There's only so many houses. Only so much land because, you know, the earth is fine. So, so the myth, it's not really a myth. There is such a thing as scarcity. But only in human-controlled systems. The scriptures tell of a liturgy of abundance. This is what Walter Brueggemann wrote in his, uh, I think it was a 1999 article called The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. The Bible starts out with a liturgy of abundance. Genesis 1 is a song of praise for God's generosity. It tells how well the world is ordered. It keeps saying it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It declares that God blesses, that is, endows with vitality the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and humankind. And it pictures the Creator as saying, be fruitful and multiply. In an orgy of fruitfulness, everything in its kind is to multiply the overflowing goodness that pours from God's creator spirit. And as you know, the creation ends in Sabbath. God is so overrun with fruitfulness that God says, I've got to take a break from all this. I've got to get out of the office. Now what the book of Revelation will call the mark of the beast is the situation in which humans can no longer receive from God but they are forced to buy into a system to get their goods. That's the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell unless you receive it. And every nation on earth has developed an economic system that you have to depend on them to receive your sustenance. And many of us have bought out. Most of us don't farm anymore. Most of us don't, don't live in any such way that God could feed us out of the heavens. We require the government because God doesn't make money, right? People make money. So if you're going to buy things with money, you're going to need people and their power, right? That's the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. And this makes people covetous because there's a limited amount of resources when it comes to human-controlled systems. A limited amount of resources. 
So Brueggemann goes on to say, possessing land, property, and wealth makes people covetous, the Bible warns. We who are now the richest nation are today's main coveters. We never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more, and this insatiable desire destroys us. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity. A belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that ambiguity. And anyone who experienced the toilet paper rush in 2020 knows exactly what he's talking about. There's only so much toilet paper, I've got to get it all! (laughs) What will I do? You've probably already recognized this, but living with a margin for compassion is not about giving money to an organization. It's not about pooling resources in a church. That's not what we're talking about. That might be a tithing conversation, but it's not a margin conversation. Living with a margin for compassion is doing the hard work of limiting the amount on which we live, not based on how much we can afford, but on how much we can reserve in order to be compassionate. And it's not a foolish kind of compassion where we give whatever anyone asks in as much quantity as they desire until we're all broke. That's not what it's about. Jesus did not say that we are to give to anyone what they ask of us. It's very important to pay attention to every word Jesus says. He didn't say to give to anyone what they asked. Instead, and with great wisdom and carefulness, Jesus said, give to him who asks. Wisdom may require us not to give precisely what is asked, but Jesus still asks us to get creative and to give to the one who is asking nonetheless. And for a living example of this, we have it in the book of Acts. The apostles Peter and John provide us a living example of this discernment in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The text says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple grounds, he began asking to receive a charitable gift. But Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, Look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now in this instance, the man wanted money. That's what he was asking for. The difficulty was that Peter and John were broke. (laughs) They were poor. They had left their fishing business to follow Jesus. And at this point, they were something like unemployed teachers with a very small group of people interested in what they had to say. So they didn't have any money to give. They were locked out of the society in which money was being produced. But they had learned from Jesus the liturgy of abundance, and they had received from Jesus authority that came from the heavens that could bring something into creation that was boundless, and that is the creative energy of God. Now, you and I might not have the same authority, but maybe we have something like it. This lame man would be begging for the rest of his life if something much more fundamental than money wasn't provided to him. Money would feed him for a day, 
but walking would enable him eventually to care for himself and then later even to care for others. So Peter and John didn't have money, but they did have the authority from Jesus to heal his legs. This is very similar to what the early Methodists did when John Wesley began to teach people life skills so that they could take care of themselves rather than just joining the throngs of charity in which he was simply giving money away. And a huge number of people in England saw their whole stashed stations lifted by the teaching they received in those Methodist societies. That's another way of making someone walk if you don't quite have the authority to do it like they did it, like Peter and John did. They did not give him what he asked for, but they did give to the one who asked. I know we've discussed a lot today, but I want to summarize it. Let me summarize what we might take away from our discussion. And the Spirit is going to have to guide you on what this looks like in your life. First, God commanded Israel not to depend on all their wealth for their living. God asked Israel to reserve some of what they produced for compassion, for generosity, and specifically for compassion and generosity for the poor and the disenfranchised. So Israel was not to think of the whole field as belonging to them. Right? The teachings of the New Testament, too, assume this lifestyle of margin if we are to really follow Jesus. So our first lesson is that we are encouraged as citizens of the kingdom not to spend all that we earn on ourselves and on those closest to us. Some should be reserved for those who we encounter in the course of our lives who are in need. Jennifer and I heard the story of a pastor who used to carry $50 in his wallet that he was intent on giving away every week. He was just looking for the one in need to whom to give it. That's a way of reserving margin, right? It's creative. Second, like Peter and John, we may not always have a margin in the area that a person asks for help. I may not have the skills needed to do certain tasks, or I may not have the financial margin necessary to meet certain needs. But none of those limitations alleviate me of the responsibility to give to the one who asks of me. We serve a God who created everything from nothing, who fed a nation of people in an arid wilderness for 40 years, who fed 5,000 people with five loaves and a few fish. He has certainly provided me something that I could help with. There will always be something we can give to those who ask. Maybe it will be money. Maybe it will be food. Maybe it will be time. Maybe it will be simply attention. Maybe it will be mentoring, like the early Methodists, and tutoring to help people improve their station. God has called us to look into the deep recesses of what he has entrusted to us and to give out of our margin, out of the part of our lives that God has provided us more than we need. And finally, in those extreme cases in which the need is great, but we have absolutely no margin out of which to help, what do we do then? Well, that's when we have to reject the myth of scarcity and embrace the Bible's liturgy of abundance. Jesus has suggested that in those extreme circumstances, we can afford to give what we cannot afford to lose if we are walking with God. To use Jesus' words, we can give away our cloak along with our tunic only because Jesus has promised to care for us. He expresses this more fully a little later in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. This is what Jesus said. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? 
Notice he doesn't say don't worry about money. Money is in the realm of mammon and render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That belongs to Rome. He's not saying don't worry about money, but he is saying don't worry about food or the care for your body. These are things God is in charge of. Look at the birds of the sky that they do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you by worrying can add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. For each one who follows Jesus, please do not harvest to the edges of your field. Leave a margin for compassion. It will be an act of faith, but I think it's one that God will honor. And if due to circumstances beyond your control, There is no way for you to leave a financial margin, especially if you are of those who are gleaning in the fields and surviving by the generosity of others. Even then, somewhere in your life, God will have provided you more than you need. And out of that margin, if you reserve it for compassion, you will find opportunity to use it. Jesus has promised us that God will honor those who trust him in these ways. It's not a call to self-sacrifice in which we enrich others to become beggars ourselves. That's not the context of Jesus' teachings. Only God can ask a person to sacrifice him or herself. The call to live with a margin for compassion assumes that we are loving others as ourselves, not instead of ourselves. Remember, we pay attention to every word that Jesus speaks. May the Lord add his blessing to the exploration of his word today.